Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello? Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. This is Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture. With me, Neil Denny. This week, science correspondent Alok Jar tells us the extraordinary story of our most ordinary substance in the water book. Jar is a journalist and broadcaster based in London. He is science correspondent for ITN and before that was a science correspondent at The Guardian. He's presented science programmes for BBC Two and BBC Radio 4 and he received a Science Writing Award from the American Institute of Physics in 2014 and was named European Science Writer of the Year in 2008 and has been shortlisted for Feature Writer of the Year at the Annual Association of British Science Writers Awards. Previously he was the author of How to Live Forever and the Doomsday Handbook one of which, at least, we've talked about on a previous Little Atoms. And his latest book is The Water Book. So, Alok, thank you very much for coming back to the show. It's a pleasure. Let's um, talk about, first of all, why water? Well, water is one of these things which you, you and I, every one of us, takes completely for granted. It's there all around us. Uh, we have interacted, you, we, every one of us um, has interacted with it all, almost all day today. We've probably said the word water lots of times, but it's completely invisible in terms of how we think about it. Uh, you might even, you might get annoyed about it if it's raining, uh, you know, if you get wet or something, but you don't really think about it much more than that. And in actual fact, of course, uh, if you did just spend a few minutes thinking about it you'd know that it, it forms the basis for um, all of life it is the chemical that's required for all of that you know that it, every object around you whether it's a table or a cup or a bit of food or a building even has a water footprint there is water involved in the construction of it um, it is the substance which we've really built all of human civilization on and and more than more than humans it's it's how the world is shaped with weather and so on and so it's this one tiny molecule that does all of those things and and i thought it'd be really interesting to investigate that and make people at the hopefully at the end of reading the book if they've enjoyed it to take a glass of water that thing that they've probably drunk seven times today already and not thought much about to take that glass of water and just look at it in a slightly different way open your eyes to something which is there all around you but just look at it slightly differently that's all Mm. i want people to do and the thing that's so familiar to all of us as you say weirdly it's like we don't know that much about it, do we? We don't know that much about it. I mean, we didn't know it was a molecule until uh, about 200 years ago. Um, it was considered one of the elements of life, you know, earth, uh, air, uh, water. You know, classically, in whatever culture you want, it was one of the elements. And it was, wasn't until the sort of 17th, 18th century that we started to look at um, the pneumatic chemists, chemists interested in air, were starting to look at what this stuff might be. And then they discovered it's hydrogen and oxygen. And there's an interesting story about and there between James Watt and Henry Cavendish Mm -hmm. there's a sort of battle between those two but just to discover the formula for water um, which is really interesting it's it's a story about engineering versus science upper classes versus lower classes and it's classic sort of scientific tale which we don't tell enough of we we always think science is something that's uh, kind of classless and value free and everything moves forward bit by bit because of the facts but actually it it is to do with whether who you believe and and all that anyway it's an interesting story Uh, but by the sort of 19th century we knew it was H2O and after that, really, it was too complicated for chemists to really understand or try and work out because, yeah, it, it sort of sits there inert in your glass, but actually it behaves very oddly. It, it has all these strange properties that um, we are, again, familiar with, but we don't think of as strange because water is kind of brainwashed into thinking that 
what it does is normal. Mm-hmm. And it, it's taken most of the 20th century for people, for chemists to become brave enough to actually try and understand this stuff. Um, so one of the things, you know, water is a liquid. We, uh, we, uh, the room temperature, uh, the pressures and, and, and temperatures on the earth, water is a liquid. And it's the most normal thing in the world, except that it shouldn't be, right? Hydrogen sulfide, H2S, which is a very similar molecular weight to water, H2O, is a gas. Ammonia, NH3, is a gas. These things are all gases and they have similar molecular weight to water. So why is water a liquid? That, that makes kind of no sense. <clears throat> and the reason is because water molecules like to stick together um, in a way that other molecules don't. And, and that's just one of the many, many, many things that make no sense. It doesn't follow the normal rules of, rules of chemistry and has stopped lots of scientists for a long time trying to understand it. I mean, obviously, we are getting better at doing that and mm-hmm. we know lots more about it now. Well, the other one of those examples that everybody will obviously be familiar with is the fact that ice floats in water, and we probably wouldn't think of it, but it shouldn't do as well. It shouldn't do, and and you know, again, you just think of it as completely normal because our world is shaped by water, and in a way that it, well, what's that thing in the Usual Suspects? Uh, that line at the end where uh, I don't want to ruin it for anyone, but it's uh, you know the, the greatest trick the devil ever pulled was to convince the world he didn't exist. It was a bit like that with water. The greatest trick water has pulled on all of us uh, and society and everything is to convince us that it's completely normal. And so water, when it freezes, it expands into ice. And uh, you know if you've ever had burst pipes or stuck a bottle of champagne in the uh, in the freezer, you'll know that mm-hmm. well because it, it split, cracks your bottle open, you know, uh, or cracks your pipes. It expands, and so that means that it's less dense than liquid water, and it floats. And we don't think of that as weird at all, because it, whenever you have a drink and you stick water uh, ice in your in your drink, it just floats. But it is weird. Nothing else does that. It makes no sense because when things get colder, they should contract and they should get more dense and sink to the bottom of the liquid. And and there's interesting reasons why it does float. But again, like the water being liquid at atmospheric pressure on Earth, the fact that ice floats is another one of these many non-standard things about water in terms of the chemistry. Mm-hmm. And they, they might well be anomalies that you think, oh, well, that's interesting, whatever. But if it wasn't for those little things and about 20 or 30 things like that that don't make sense, you wouldn't have the world as you see it around you. It just would not exist. Another one of those weird things, which I think people won't be familiar with necessarily, but this is a thing that was discovered by a a Tanzanian schoolboy. The Mpemba effect, yeah. It it sounds a bit unbelievable, doesn't it? But So so Erasto Mpemba, his name was, he was a Tanzanian schoolboy. They were doing science experiments at school and actually making ice cream mixture. And they would take milk, boil it up, let it cool down to room temperature and put it in the freezer to make ice cream. And what he found was something quite profound and it's something that was written about by Aristotle and uh, Francis Bacon and people like that. The Mpemba effect, as it's known, is that hot water or hot water-based liquids freeze faster than cold ones. Let me say that one more time. Hot water freezes faster than cold water, which... It just doesn't, again, it makes no sense at all, does it? Well, so what he found was, he, he, uh, well, the reason he found this out was that um, he was making his ice cream and he, so he, he writes in his little paper that, that, that they wrote that the freezer space in their school was quite a, a premium. And so uh, he's noticed that one of his school fellow uh, so school pupils uh, wasn't boiling up the, the, the milk so that when he uh, put the sugar and all the other stuff in, he could just stick it straight in the freezer. Whereas what he'd done was to boil it up and make the ice cream properly. I was waiting for it to cool down. He was thinking, if I don't get my ice cream into the fridge now, then I won't have any space. So he just shoved it in uh, as a hot mixture, thinking, oh my God, I'm going to destroy the fridge because that's not a good idea. And then he found a couple of hours later when they were checking up on their ice creams that his mate's ice cream, which had started cold, still was a sludgy sort of mixture and his was completely solid and it turns out that the uh, the local ice cream vendors were doing the same thing they were putting hot, hot ice cream mix into into the freezer as well and it, yeah hot water freezes fast and cold and kind of no one really knows why um there are some ideas one of the ideas is that uh, is that if you boil a liquid you get rid of some of its impurities some of the gases that are dissolved in there and um, you might remember from your high school chemistry classes that if you if you have impurities in in something it lowers the freezing point mm-hmm. and it raises the, the boiling point so if you imagine two glasses of water one's hot and one's cold the hot one has fewer impurities so when you're cooling it down it just um it cools and freezes at a normal temperature uh, whereas the cold one if it's got lots of stuff dissolved in it then it's 
it's going to take longer to freeze. I mean, it's kind of arguable as to whether that would always work. Another idea is this thing called supercooling, um, which is quite a cool thing. Um, if you've ever watched a Royal Institution Christmas lecture, um, one out of every three years of those, they always do this experiment where they take a bottle of water very carefully out of this sort of ice bath, and it's liquid, and you can see it's liquid, and it moves around. And then what they do is um, um, they bang it on the table, and it freezes instantly. Mm-hmm. And what's happened there is the water is supercooled in that water can get to below um, zero degrees Celsius and not solidify. If it hasn't got a sort of new, uh, a place for the water, cri- the ice crystals to start, so every crystal needs a place to start growing, basically. If it hasn't got one, it won't, um, um, it won't grow into crystals. And so it'll get to about minus 18, and then you know, other, other factors take over, and it'll definitely solidify. But until then, you, know, you, you can have some water at minus 10 degrees Celsius, and it just it's just liquid. And so what the, the idea with supercooling and the Mapemba effect is that perhaps what's happening is that as the cold water freezes it forms a layer of ice at the top and as we know ice floats it's at the top and it insulates the water underneath so it takes just a little bit longer for the whole thing to freeze whereas with hot water it's getting colder it's getting colder it's getting colder and it's of course it might be uh, a bit purer because Mm -hmm. all the gases have gone out so there aren't as many gas bubbles in there to start the crystallization so it gets to like i don't know minus five or six or seven and then something happens uh it gets knocked or there is a little bit of a wrinkle inside the bottle and it freezes instantly so actually the whole thing freezes faster than the other i mean you can tell we don't know the answer i'm sort of (laughs) grasping at straws no one knows the answer but it's been a mystery for hundreds of years (laughs) i'm helen scales and you're listening to little atoms a podcast about ideas and culture i want to talk about water on earth and how much and of what types of water there are on earth but really to get to the fact that you know, there's a lot more that we didn't know about, for instance, there's water inside the Earth as well. Yeah, so, so the water on the surface of the Earth, the stuff we're familiar with, mostly in the oceans, um, 70% of the Earth's surface is covered in water. That's a fairly familiar stat, probably. And uh, that's, that's we're talking about ice, we're talking about ice cover, we're talking about the, the, the water in the oceans, lakes, rivers, seas, in the air. Um, there's plenty of water in the air as it moves around, uh, forming weather. And 97% of it is salty, uh, and only 1% is available is fresh water, which is what we use. So that's the water we know about. And it's something like 1.5 billion cubic kilometres. I remember the number off the top of my head. I think it's about that much. So it's a lot. And then, um, you're, I think you're talking about, uh, there is much more than that inside the Earth, though. But it's not... It's told in the book through the story of, of some guys in South America finding a yeah. weird diamond. So, so there's, there's this diamond that was shot out of the, uh, of the centre of the Earth uh, in a volcano uh, and found many years ago. And then it was described in Nature. I think it was about 2010 or 11 or something. It was described in Nature. And, and it was kind of a, a not very attractive-looking diamond at all. It was an ugly thing. You wouldn't want to uh, use that for an engagement ring, definitely. But what was in important about it was that it was an inclusion in a mineral and this mineral is called ringwoodite and it it's completely fills the inside of the earth it's uh, it's kind of one of these things which you know the crust of the earth is is tiny compared to what's inside the rest of it we barely know what's in there and ringwoodite has um has been suspected to have lots of water bonded into it not so it's not a liquid it's not like an ocean down there mm-hmm. it's just it bonded into the mineral of the rock and it's all to do with how the earth was formed and how much water there was in the grains and things in those things and they've stayed there and so the idea is that it, this this ringwoodite exists and it has a certain proportion of water it's a very small proportion of water uh, just a couple of percent, but there's so much ringwoodite in the in the and, and similar uh, minerals in the earth that it would mean that it, there are multiple times the Earth's oceans locked in there. Mm-hmm. So you can you can almost talk about the whole fabric of the Earth not only being covered in oceans and, and water, but made of water as well. So I want to talk about how we got there then, because well, let's go back to earlier than that actually and talk about how water came to be in the first place so the, let's go right back to the beginning of the universe well yeah if you ask people where does the water come from you, you know people say you might, you might have a smart ass answer say, oh it comes from the seas well yeah of course but how did it get to the seas well it turns out that our oceans uh, all the water on the surface of the earth pretty much all the water on the surface of the earth all the water inside you and me and everyone listening is older than the earth that's the first thing to sort of uh, understand and if you're a Carl Sagan fan like probably you are that's not news to you we're all made of star stuff all of that yeah 
But where it was made, if you think about the beginning of the universe 13.7 billion years ago, the hydrogen's already there in the first few minutes. Uh, and in fact, most of the universe is still hydrogen. Um, and then the first stars form, and then you get the first heavier elements, things like helium, um, uh, lithium, oxygen. All those things come from the supernovae that, that end up at the end of the life of the first generation of stars. So you've got these, these nebulae in the sky, and we see these nebulae, you know, the horsehead nebulae, the catfish, all these beautiful sort of coloured clouds of debris and they're enormous things and, and they're filled with silicon and oxygen and, and, and carbon and all these things made from the first generation of stars and our sun uh, was formed from the hydrogen inside one of these nebulae so it was formed in kind of a dirty environment and there's all this stuff around it and as it formed it was chucking out energy and the and the space around it the hydrogen and oxygen around it would kind of come together and form water and you still see this now you see if you look up in space there are stars you can you can look at where there are these jets of water coming out the top and bottom and and this by the way is not our water i'll come to that in just a second uh, this water goes off into space and it's quickly dissociated by uv radiation that's sort of floating around from uh, from various stellar sources and the point i want to make with that is that every star basically creates water when it's made so it's actually a very universal substance it's mm-hmm. not just something special our water is made in a slightly different way in that you've got the star the sun forming at the center of this nebula and there's all these dust grains sort of floating around it, all the way out to what will become the edge of the solar system and they're kind of bits of carbon and silicon and so on and hydrogen atoms and oxygen atoms are bouncing into this stuff and it's a very hard it's a very empty vacuum i mean it really really there's not much there but over a long period of time, things can happen. And so over a long period of time, what will happen is the hydrogen atoms will collide with the carbon grain, tiny carbon grain, nanometer-sized thing, and an oxygen atom will combine, uh, collide with it at the same time. And they'll just bond uh, with another hydrogen atom there. And you get an, at- an atom of water. Over hundreds of thousands of years, this tiny grain will essentially sort of collect a carapace of ice. And there's these grains covered in ice sort of floating around, and eventually these are the things that come together to form stones and boulders and meteorites and meteorites and asteroids rather comets and as the solar system evolves these become planets and so our earth is created from these grains covered in in, in ice essentially and this is the same actually with all the planets in the solar mm-hmm. system um, they all come and then different things happen to the different ones and you know in terms of planetary evolution we, we've only really understood this story in the past couple of decades past decade I would say to be mm-hmm. honest we've understood uh, we still don't know a lot about how the earth formed there's lots of ideas but the idea that these grains came together and this, this our water comes for, for, was formed like I said but then the interesting thing is that as our earth forms it gets it's very hot the first few hundred thousand years incredibly hot place it's called the Hydean after after the Greek for hell and essentially it's volcanic and there's there's, there's too much heat on the surface and all the water that's in those grains essentially flies off the earth it just evaporates away so you imagine a sort of uh, venus like it is now it's completely hellish and so we're left uh, you know four billion years ago with this planet that's hot and dry which is not what we see now no so where did all that water come well, from? where did all that water come from and the, and the answer is it came from the edge of space it came from the kuiper belt and places like that this is the f- you know, we're, we've just started to explore the Kuiper Belt, so this, this is why we're mm-hmm. interested in the Kuiper Belt. Because we think that virtually all of the water on the surface of the Earth came from comets and asteroids. Um, in a period of time, over 500 million years, uh, about 4 billion years ago, it was called the Late Heavy Bombardment. And the, the Earth and all the inner planets, Mars, Venus, Mercury, were pummeled by asteroids from the edge of the solar system, mm-hmm. the Kuiper Belt. There are competing theories here, aren't there? So, the so there are. Uh, uh, so just to finish the, uh, the asteroid idea, the idea is that the asteroids came along, they, they brought water with them because they were made of the same stuff. And mm-hmm. as I described, these big boulders full of water and ice things, they came and they brought the ice and the water with them. Right, okay. So that's, that's one theory. And, and you get an argument around whether it's comets or it's asteroids. Yeah. Uh, at the moment, it looks like it's mostly asteroids, but only six months ago, it was mostly comets. So yeah. we don't. That, that's an argument. Yeah, and there are others, but that's that's the that's the dry formation theory. It's called. There's a the thing called the wet formation theory, which is actually that um, not all the water left the Earth when it was forming, and that mm-hmm. a majority of it is there. We still have you know, the majority of it sort of remained. But the thing is, if that's the case, you would see telltale, tell geological signs which you don't necessarily see mm-hmm. in the Earth. So that's out of favour at the moment. It's not to say that one day you're not going to find these things and, and so on. But the, the preferred 
almost vast majority of, of scientists believe that it came, that the water came from from external uh, sources. Yeah. And whether it's asteroids, whether it's comets, where they, those those things came from, we don't know. We still don't know those answers. Well, you said it. You know, it used to be comets. Now it's asteroids. I mean, we've just been to a comet, yeah. landed on a comet, and that's how it, things change. That's. Um, I mean, while I was writing this book, it was comets, right? It was comets that brought the the water to the earth, and because comets are half water, half rock, and whereas asteroids are mainly rocks, and so you think, well, it's kind of obvious, they're dirty snowballs, as comets are called. And then that amazing mission, Rosetta, sort of turns up and lands Philae onto the comet, and they, they sniff the water. And the way you can tell, the way that you, you try and work out where the water comes from is to, on the Earth, the water um, has a very specific ratio between the hydrogen and the deuterium. So there's a heavy version of hydrogen called deuterium, and some of the water molecules on the Earth are made of this heavier hydrogen. And there's a very set ratio on the Earth. Um, and so if you can find comets or asteroids that have the similar mm-hmm. hydrogen-deuterium ratio, that's you know that it's likely that those are the kinds of comets, or that's the location of the comets. And uh, 67P, I can't remember the full name of the comet, unfortunately, Churyumov Gerasimenko, I think it's called. Someone will correct me. That comet does not have the same uh, ratio of hydrogen and deuterium. In fact, from memory, I think the ratio of deuterium is three times higher or something on that comet. So that means, it doesn't mean that comets aren't the final arbiter of it, but Mm -hmm. it means that it's not that kind of comet coming from that part of the sky. And then uh, it was around January when this result was published this year that people started thinking, you know, it's probably, we should revise our opinions on this, and it is probably like two uh, asteroids now. But then until we land on an asteroid and do the same thing, things might change again. I'm Dylan Evans. Go and read some great new journalism and explore the interview archive at littleatoms.com. I just want to finish this part then, talking about, we've been talking about water on Earth, we've been talking about how the water got there from the very beginning of the universe. Let's go a little bit further out then and talk about whether or not there's water elsewhere. There is, and it's everywhere. Water is the second most common molecule in the universe. It's kind of understandable in the way that hydrogen and oxygen are very common atoms, and so they're everywhere, so you'd expect there to be lots of water. And our solar system is filled with this stuff, so um, it was made out of the same grains of carbon, ice-encrusted carbon and silicon and things that the Earth was. So you'd imagine that naturally there was lots of water there. And then all the detritus, all the stuff that didn't manage to make up planets comets and the asteroids and other things that exist still is still in the, uh, in, the, in the solar system that contain lots and lots of water. We've suspected there's water on other planets for decades, only really confirmed it in the past 10, 20 years or so. Uh, even Mercury has massive ice caps in the shaded regions. Um, we discovered that only with Messenger a few years ago. There is water on Venus, but that's a special case in that it, a lot of that has evaporated away. We know there's water on Mars, there's ice caps, there's water bonded into the, um, into the soil, there's water on the moon. We've only discovered that a few years ago. And that's the surprising thing. We've only discovered that a few years ago. I mean, I mean you kind of deep down know there's water on all those places, but we only mm-hmm. confirmed it recently. And then going out further, the moons are the giant gas planets. They seem to be water worlds. Mm-hmm. So Enceladus, uh, the moon of Saturn. Europa, the moon of Jupiter. Uh, Titan, the moon of Saturn as well. These things have underground... Uh, they, they have oceans of water on them um, and they're covered in crusts of ice and Enceladus and Europa specifically actually are the two most exciting places for us to find possibly other other life out there because mm-hmm. what we know about them is that there's tons and tons of interesting environment there which which is um, might be um, the, the sort of precursor to Enceladus has um, for example oceans of water sitting on minerals which are which are the kinds of conditions you had on the earth before life started so people get excited about the fact that well, if life started here in those conditions, maybe it's over there as well. And only recently, July, we found mountains of ice on Pluto. I mean, this stuff's everywhere. One of the places you just mentioned, Titan, I mean, there is, we know there is water there, but it also has, it has seas. Um, but these seas are made of methane and things. They're very, very different. One of the things we haven't really talked about, because it's very complicated, is how central water is to life, to life getting started in the first place, but to life itself. But is there alternatives to water out there? If you're looking for life on other planets, other places, it makes sense to look for life like ours, um, because we know that our life exists and, and that and, and we kind of know what to look for. And the one thing that unifies all of life on the Earth as we know it is it uses water. There is no life without water, and wherever there is water on the Earth, there is life. 
in extreme situations. So that gives us, gives us excitement that actually other planets in the solar system which have extreme situations and extreme environments might well um, also have life. And so uh, there are lots and lots of things that water does in life. We don't have time to discuss them now, but a lot of the anomalies we talked about and sort of weird chemistry they're the kinds of things that life uses to create the disequilibriums of, of energy that it needs to function, essentially. And so if you're going to have something that doesn't use water, it will still need some sort of medium to exist in, some sort of liquid to exist in. And then you have to get imaginative, really. Um, and there are liquids out there that can do some of the things that water does. Um, organic compounds, um, things like formamide, which are these sort of uh, compounds which can do some of the things that liquid does whether it's the one of the most important things that water does is um it sticks to itself so uh, the hydrogen of one will attach itself to the oxygen of another atom uh, another molecule these are hydrogen bonds and water forms lots of these and life processes use that sort of network of bonds hydrogen bonds between water molecules to do stuff whether it's to shape a protein in the right way or you know uh, move energy from one place to another so you need hydrogen bonds or something similar which can move energy around and do all these other things. So you need it to do that. You need it to um, also uh, be very good at dissolving things. You need it to be very good at um, essentially uh, moving energy around. So NASA, amongst others, have wondered about this. So first of all, they're looking for water elsewhere. So that's, that's what they're doing for life. But then they're wondering, well, could there be other liquids? Well, you can have mixtures, theoretically, that could do a lot of the things that water does. But so far, we haven't got any evidence that these have created life elsewhere. And another disadvantage is that these things aren't as common as water in the universe. And so if you just think about how things evolve, I mean, it's a numbers game, right? Uh, there might be a planet out there filled with formamide and methane and other things that um, has got a life form evolved for it. And there's no, no reason to think that, that that definitely isn't there. But it's going to be very rare. And we don't even know how rare life is with water at the moment. We know that it happened on the Earth, but it might have been that it happened billions of times and every time it just didn't work and one of them managed to succeed. So even with water, which is every single place in the universe, even then it's really rare. So imagine something which is very, very a material which is even rarer than that, which can possibly do the life stuff, but the numbers don't sort of speak in its favour. But there are certainly chemicals that if you mix them together uh, would have a lot of the support structures you need for life. The life would look very different to ours because our life is based around water and, and those life, if it was methane or ammonia or whatever it was, depending on what it ate, what it metabolised, what the conditions were on the surface, the planet it lived on, would look different. And it might look so different that we don't recognise it as life. I mean, uh, there's theoretical life forms I describe in the book after speaking to some very imaginative astrobiologists. But you don't re- you've got to take them all with a little bit of a pinch of salt. These things are not fact. They're just uh, very intelligent people sort of being creative. And I think there's, 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 there's room for that. But let's not think that um, these things are common throughout the universe. Atoms. I'm Neil Denny and today I'm talking to Alok Jar, and we're talking about The Water Book. Part of the narrative of this book is a trip, I say trip, an expedition you took to Antarctica and I want to get us on to that but, but before we do let's go back to the, the sort of start of the science of oceanography. Um, there's a, an expedition called the Challenger Expedition so tell us what that was, what they were doing. Another one of the surprising things about water, and I suppose our oceans, is that before the uh, 19th century, people had travelled across the oceans and had explored new worlds. And, you know, of course, trade was big across the oceans and ships and so on. No one really paid much attention to what was in the oceans. Mm-hmm. It was something you got across. It was like a, a blank a, a, a space you just had to mm-hmm. go across no one really considered what's underneath them or how deep these things might be or any of these things and of course now we're very familiar with oceanography and the deep and the, the life down there and it's, it's kind of endlessly fascinating and it is a surprise probably to learn that we only really understood 
in about the 1860s. Um, there was two. There were two British scientists and explorers, uh, William Carpenter, Charles Thompson, and what they did was lead essentially a four-year expedition funded by the British government, uh, the Royal Society, partly, uh, and others. And what they did was to, to take the HMS Challenger, which had been fitted for this. It was a, it was a former Navy ship. And they, they took it around the world and essentially stopped off at dozens and dozens of places and did rudimentary oceanography. So they would uh, throw a plank out the back and look at how quickly the um, the currents were moving they would throw over um, rope with knots in it to see how deep they would go they would sample the life down there um, they would take they brought back jars and jars of, of, of water from different places they would, they would measure the temperature of the oceans I mean this kind of very basic oceanography the, 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 the kind of deep down dirty stuff which happens all the time today by the way and you know st- still we don't know in loads about the oceans but we're trying with satellites and robotic probes and stuff but they these guys started it and they they are the ones who really um, started to uh, catalog what Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile with the price of just about everything going up during inflation we thought we'd bring our prices down so to help us we brought in a reverse auctioneer which is apparently a thing Mint Mobile unlimited premium wireless ready to get 30 30 ready to get 30 ready to get 20 20 20 ready to get 20 20 ready to get 15 15 15 15 just 15 bucks a month so give it a try at mintmobile.com/switch $45 up front for 3 months plus taxes and fees promo rate for new customers for limited time unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows full terms at mintmobile.com hold up what was that boring no flavor that was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Most of our surface of the earth was like. And so this expedition, which has gone down in legend, they came back and they took them 20 years, I think, to go through all the de- all the specimens that they'd found. And uh, they made beautiful drawings and stuff. I and mean, these things are, are it's, it's kind of stuff of legend now. But I, I, weirdly, it's a, it's a story that, although if you're an oceanographer, you probably know, the, the rest, I found it quite surprising to learn that it's not something that there's, there's huge numbers of books about or mm-hmm. that we've not even got a sort of uh, Kenneth Branagh film about it or anything. It, it's, that, it's that kind of thing, isn't it? It's kind of, it, it's of the sort of Antarctic Shackleton type stuff. It, yeah. it, it's real daring do and exciting uh, adventure around the world. And there's another oceanographer, famous, a Russian oceanographer, who the boat that you sailed the Antarctic is named after. Well, yeah, Yuli Shukalsky. So Yuli Shukalsky uh, was, uh, he, in a sense, is the father of Russian oceanography. Uh, and he was at naval, he was in naval, he was in naval college around the time that um, the HMS Challenger was, was leaving for port, actually. So in, in the 1870s, he was um, sort of a, a young seaman, essentially. And then over the next 40 or 50 years, led many expeditions uh, himself to catalogue the world's oceans and came up with the idea that all the oceans of the world were connected. He thought of the phrase, the world ocean, uh, is rather than these individual oceans, mm-hmm. there, there is a, there an ocean for the whole world. And uh, he's a well, well-respected um, oceanographer and, and wrote many of the encyclopedias and things are in the early in the 20th century that oceanography is based on. And, and the ship that we went to Antarctica on, the expedition that left from New Zealand um, as part of the Australasian Antarctic Expedition in 2013, 
was called the Academic Shakalsky. It was one of several naval polo ships from the Russian uh, built in Russia, and it yeah it, it was named after him. I remember actually not knowing much about Shakalsky until after I came back, but uh, there was a little picture of him sort of unceremoniously under under the decks to sort of tell you who he was. But uh, most of the writing was in Russian, so I didn't really appreciate the grandeur of his uh, of his tenure in in Russian oceanography. How did you end up on this on this expedition? Well, one thing first first thing I learned. I'm not a sea person. I'm not an outdoors person. I don't like really being cold or wet. If I'm honest. The expedition was um, organised by a scientist who I know, a British scientist, um, who I'd worked, you know, he, he's written many books on climate change, and he's a, he's a paleoclimatologist, meaning he reconstructs um, ancient climates using uh, ice cores and, and, and tree rings mm-hmm. and all sorts of things. And one of the things he's been doing for the last seven or eight years is going to Antarctica to look at the uh, ice cores there uh, and measure ice. And, and he wanted to set up an expedition to Antarctica, a privately funded expedition. And if you think back to the early 20th century, the very first expeditions, so Shackleton, Scott, Amundsen, mm-hmm. Douglas Mawson, uh, they, they funded their expeditions by themselves. There was no government funding for this. They, they sent out adverts in newspapers. They got people to sponsor. They had uh, people on board who were paying for the uh, experience, basically to do science down there, or in Scott and Amundsen's case, to race to the South Pole. And so Chris Turney, the scientist uh, who uh, the University of New South Wales who wanted to do this, thought, well, why don't I try and set up an expedition? Like this? So over several years, he raised the money, various sponsors, and he chartered the ship, which is a, was a very experienced ship. It had been... Uh, going for 25 or 30 years and um, yeah so in, the idea was it was 100 years after Douglas Mawson's ex- uh, expedition to Antarctica and Douglas Mawson is the Australian hero of Antarctic exploration like Scott and Shackleton are, are the British ones mm-hmm. Douglas Mawson is, is, is of the same calibre as those guys. In fact, Mawson was on one of the first Shackleton expeditions to, the, uh, to, the, to Antarctica. So he raised the money to take uh, a bunch of people to uh, Antarctica in 1913, spent a few years there, and he went back again 25 years later. He's probably, for the amount of work he did as a geologist and as a scientist, and for the weather measurements he made down there, the amount of science he did down there, he's quite, I think, unfairly unknown. <laughs> in the pantheon of um, expedition uh, expeditioners. But he really deserves to be up there with the other three. I mean, he's the, the four. Uh, I mentioned Amazon, Scott, Mawson, Shackleton. They are the four who discovered Antarctica for all of us. And so the ship we were on was an attempt to, 100 years later, take the same measurements that Mawson had made um, we're using modern instruments, of course, uh, over the same sort of period of time, going to the same part of the, of the Antarctic. I'm going to visit his huts, in fact, to look at how this untouched, very pristine part of the world has been affected by climate change. We've discovered climate change in the past century. Um, this part of the world, which you know, very few humans visit. I mean, Antarctica, generally hardly few people go there. But this part of Antarctica, East Antarctica, where Mawson went, even fewer people than that go there. So um, the idea was to look at how climate change has affected this part of the world. And we'll get to that. I mean, it doesn't quite turn out how you've, how you've just described when you get there. But the journey there, first of all, so before you even get to anywhere where there's, where there's ice, you've got to cross quite a, a big bit of the Antarctic Ocean so what was that like? Yeah well to get to Antarctica you have to cross this the roughest sea in the world I mean it's just the southern ocean is is this ocean that goes all the way around the earth and because it has no land masses between certain latitudes between about 50 and 60 degrees south the winds can just go round and round and round and whip up to enormous uh, enormous uh, speeds and so the the, the, the ancient sailors who uh, ancient I mean a hundred years ago the sailors who would go down there would give names to these winds, the, the furious 50s and the screaming 60s. And, you know, many boats and ships have, were lost there. And so it, it is, it's like, it's like uh, the waves are, felt like they were skyscraper high at certain times and uh, nothing was ever calm at any point. And the colour of the ocean was this deep, deep, deep blue that I'd never seen before. And the ship was just constantly like moving. It was like a little little fly in the middle of this enormous expanse. It was just being tossed around constantly. I mean, it was fine. The ship was used to these things. We weren't inside, obviously. And certainly me, who lives in Islington and can't get out a Wi-Fi range without getting worried. And, you know, uh, if your body's not used to that, you get sick. And that's exactly what happened after about an hour of sort of being on the ship. And we hadn't even got to the roughest parts yet. We were just coming out of port in, in, um, in Bacargill, the south the southern tip of New Zealand and I don't know if, if you've been on a ship you're probably used to this but I haven't really been on that many ships but just the idea that you're moving completely in three dimensions I mean when you're on solid ground you generally you can control you and you're still you can control your movements and things but the idea that 
the ground is moving underneath you just imperceptibly at first and it just your inner ear just goes a little bit crazy going what, what's going on why are, you, why are you in this position sit down sit down and after half an hour of this my head was just completely uh, incapable of focusing on anything I was trying to take pictures but that was a bad idea and I, I just had to go down and lie down and for, for about a day I was really unwell I mean it was horrendous the, uh, the seasickness and it, there's nothing you can do about it and I remember thinking I took some seasickness pills and sort of d- fell off to sleep the first night I remember thinking that this is my first two hours on this ship and I've got a month before I can get off I mean, it, there was absolutely no way I was getting off this thing. And I just thought, you've got to suck it up. And I just prayed and prayed, and I'm not a religious person, but I prayed to whatever atheist god there was out there that something would just help me out. Some clinical trial of medicine that I was imbibing would just sort me out. Because this, wasn't, this wasn't pleasant. I'm Ben Goldacre, and you're listening to Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture. And so let's talk about when you first get to... Well, when you first get to the ice and you start to see ice flows and icebergs and things, what was that experience like? Yes, yeah, so the, the ship moving carried on for days and days, and it's a testament to the human sort of abilities, even my soft human abilities, that you just get used to it. You, know, you just The ship moves and your body just sort of naturally sort of gets used to it. It stopped rocking um, at about 60 degrees south when we started to see ice on the surface of the, of the ocean. And by then, every day as we went south the temperature of the water got a little bit colder and at about 60 degrees, which is the Antarctic front, it was cold enough to hold ice. Uh, ice. And so it was, it was remarkable. I just noticed one morning we'd stopped rocking and I thought, what on earth is going on? Have we stopped completely? What's happening? I looked outside and it was because the ice was covering everywhere the, the, and it was almost like it was calming the waves. It was completely still and the water was completely black. And I don't know if it was because of the depth or something or because of the fact that the ice was so white that my eyes your eyes just can't do the contrast and it, it was just black it was like I can't deal with the colours here mm-hmm. it's pure white and it's whiter than anything you've ever seen this is the water's just going to be black you know seeing that uh, endless expanse knowing that actually this is our first hint of what's to come I mean this is the ice uh, we'd, that we saw first the ice flows are essentially remnants of the previous year's Antarctic winter. So every winter, Antarctica grows by two, but it grows in size by uh, doubles, mm-hmm. and the water freezes. And then in the summer, the water obviously warms up, and what we were seeing was the breakup of that ice, and these things float off into the Southern Ocean and melt. The second day we were there, actually, we were taken out onto one of the uh, sort of zodiacs, which are these rubber dinghies, out and in amongst the ice floes, and just sort of just sort of cruise between them. There were like Weddell seals and penguins and things just chilling out on these on these bits of ice, sort of looking at us really briefly, then just ignoring us. We we jumped onto one of these ice floes, and you know it was. I don't know if it's just an inbuilt human thing, but everyone, every person who did that, as soon as we stepped onto it, we thought, we just remember thinking, um, this ice flow didn't exist two years ago. It's not going to exist next year. I'm standing on, a, on the Southern Ocean in a place probably where no humans ever stood before. Mm-hmm. I mean, really, standing on it. And if you sort of turned your back to the rest of the crowd and looked south and there was no one in front of you, you know, you, there was no human between you and the end of the world. There was nothing. And it, it, these things I know can get a little bit sort of, a little bit trite, but it, it's impossible to explain just how beautiful it was and how meaningful it was even for someone like me who has lived in cities all his life and hasn't really had that much interest in the outside world beyond the pictures and documentaries and things you can see but being there you got suddenly got a sense of how vast how big how cold how white how black all these things are how nature does do all these different things which you can't see in your daily life so you mentioned that the the expedition was following in the footsteps of douglas mawson and as you said his huts are still there they're preserved the huts are on the edge of a bay on a place called Cape Denison, and the idea was that you were going to sail the boat into that bay to those huts, but that turns out not to be possible. Yeah, so Douglas Mawson, his ship sailed into this really calm, beautiful harbour, and um, in a classic sort of scientific way, you couldn't think of a better name than Boat Harbour for that place. So that's what it's called now, Boat Harbour. And it's this beautiful little bay on a part of Antarctica, Antarctica called Commonwealth Bay. And he set up his base there. It turned out to be the windiest place on earth, which he didn't know at the time, and he had to spend two years essentially freezing. Uh, I mean, Antarctica's cold anyway, but these are winds which are gust up to something like 200 miles an hour, uh, and average wind speeds are like 90 miles an hour for the entire year. This is not a pleasant place. <laughs> anyway, but but he sailed straight in, and, and for until about five years ago, you could have done the same. But what happened uh, um, a few years ago was that uh, around eastern Antarctica, 
there was this enormous game of billiards, essentially, an enormous ice tongue, a uh, tongue of ice, which is a, a glacier that was about to carve off into the ocean, was knocked off by weather. Uh, it was knocked off and it floated and blocked Commonwealth Bay. And so over the last few years, what's happened is that thing's stuck there. And it's an enormous 70-mile-long iceberg called B09B. And, and Just say that again, an iceberg that is how long? 70 miles long. I mean, this, this is, this, that's not even that big. It's, yeah, I mean, we're talking about the size of Manhattan here. It's enormous. 70 miles long and, and you know, comparable um, width. Um, and it just sort of got knocked by the currents and settled, grounded just off Commonwealth Bay in front of Boat Harbour, I mean, many miles off. And the, the winds I talked about, the catabatic winds, as they're called, which persecuted Mawson and his, his team, and they serve a very specific purpose in the um, global regulation of, of water currents around the world and, uh, and weather. And what they do is, what they are, in fact, is, is the cold wind coming off the Antarctic Plateau, and it comes down the, uh, the mountain just behind Commonwealth Bay, and zooms out over this the sea, and it's a bit like when you open a fridge door, you feel the cold air coming down. So it's, a, it's just like that. And uh, these winds can get very, very intense. And what they do is they fire out over the uh, the sea and freeze the top of the sea, and this and then the the ice there floats off and into into the uh, into the Southern Ocean. And the, the, it's a place called a Polynia. It's a place where they, they, you basically essentially you make. You make icebergs, ice flows, and all this, and this ice, this ice sort of floats off. And the rest of the water, because it's now much, much more dense, because it's got it's it's cold, um, but also it has much more salt in. Because when you form ice, you extrude the salt, mm-hmm. and so it's much more sort of salty. It sinks, and that is the beginning of one of the great ocean currents around the world. So the water sinks down there, and then float, and then goes all the way up to the equator, essentially. And then you essentially, uh, there are many of these places around the world where the great global conveyor belts of water mm-hmm. move around the Earth like this. And so if this doesn't work, then the Earth's oceans don't work and things like the Gulf Stream won't happen. You know, we're talking about big connections here. Mm-hmm. But going back to our point, why we couldn't sail into Boat Harbour was because, as I said, normally these catabatic winds would would, would freeze the top of the water the, and the ice would sort of float off into the Southern Ocean. But because of B09B, the 70-mile-long iceberg, the ice was stuck. So these winds would freeze the top of the water and then the ice would just stick there. And it's now two or three metres thick, that ice. Eventually, maybe five, ten years' time, B09B, the ice, will break up. But at the moment, the ice stretches from the huts, the Mawson's huts, which are technically on the water, stretches out for about 100 kilometres or so. So we had to moor 100 kilometres away and then drive to the ice. So, yeah, so you drive there on these little sort of amphibious buggy things. Mm. How was that? Well, so so um, I suppose it's, it's it's probably good that I didn't know too much about how complex and dangerous it was beforehand. <laughs> but um, so you've got this uh, coating of two meters of ice over very deep water, and so we we moor the ship up by the side of it. And this is this is fast ice. This is ice that's stuck fast to the land. Uh, a common thing around Antarctica, but it, for our purposes, very annoying because we couldn't get right out of the huts. And so the expedition leaders had thought, right, well, if we can't sail in, we have to drive across the ice. And to do that, you need to measure the thickness of the ice all the way along. You need to have a very clear line of communication in case you get lost or stuck, because this is not a place where you can get rescued very easily, as we discovered later. And the ice is not this flat sort of ice rink type thing. It's kind of jumbled and flat and compressed in certain bits, and there's little hills of it. And some of it is looks safe, but then actually you can fall right through it. So the, the, what they had had to do, uh, before I went anyway, was they, they very gingerly, over the course of many hours, plotted their way across this ice and, and used GPS coordinates to map out a, a route which was safe. And it took about six hours to drive this thing. And you had to start very early in the morning because as the sun came up, the ice would start to melt um, and you'd be in danger because you'd be stuck in it. And so we, we started at six in the morning and started going along this route. And we're talking about, it was about 80 or so kilometres, I can't remember the exact distance, and these, these tractors, well, these amphibious vehicles, essentially were like boats, but with wheels. And um, the idea was that if we went through the ice, these things would float, um, which is always a bit worrying to think about. Um, and we then drove, and it took, it took about six hours. And it wasn't just the fact that these things could only go about 30 miles an hour. You didn't want them to go that fast, because even though in Antarctica, when the wind isn't blowing, it feels quite pleasant. 
it's actually like a nice spring day. You can wear a t-shirt and the sun's high and it's kind of warm, but the air temperature is very low. And so, so as soon as the wind starts, mm-hmm. it cuts right through you. And so we had to wear. We, we, if we were going to be driving, obviously there's continuous wind. It's, you've got a real chance of frostbite and, and hypothermia and all sorts of things. So you've got to be very prepared for this. We had many, many, many layers on, lots of food and all of that. And so we drove, and it was one of the most unpleasant experiences. I mean, we're talking about unpleasant experiences. It just made me talk about the uh, the seasickness. That was something. But at least you were warm and you're in a bed, and you could sort of just someone could just rock you to sleep a little bit or something. And then a couple a day later, it just went. This you couldn't really sleep because if you did, you'd fall out of the buggy. You can't do that. It was incredibly cold, and then every sense gets scrambled. So when you're going hell for leather, or you think anyway, at 20 miles an hour, 30 miles an hour across the ice, and you're holding on and the wind is cutting right through you and you've got to close your eyes and your the, the tears that are streaming out of your face are freezing to your face essentially so all of that's happening you you look ahead and you think oh well at least something's getting closer well no nothing gets closer everything's white everything's the same color there's an iceberg in the distance that's stuck there because it can't leave and uh it doesn't get any closer. For hours, you're moving and nothing seems to have changed around you. But you are moving. And you start to think, God, are we going around in circles? Um, are these people, uh, do they know what they're doing? It's just, I, 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 it was a three-hour, four-hour experience for me, five-hour experience. And you can imagine, if you're Scott or Amundsen or, or Mawson, for a month, these people, two months, went by themselves with gear, having all sorts of calamities, like losing their men and food. You do, you have to have a psychological makeup that is, it just gives you a flavour of that. Mm-hmm. So it was really, really, really bloody unpleasant. I'm Caitlin Doty. Check out the growing Little Adams media empire at littleadams.com. Well, things don't end there. There's, I mean, you, you know, you go to these huts, there's signs going on and everything, and then eventually you're going to leave the Antarctic, or you want to leave the Antarctic. Mm. Now, I, I remember this happening at the time. Anybody that knows you, follows you on Twitter or whatever, will, will, will remember what happened next. What um, happened next, Neil? I can't remember. <laughs> you were well, not able to leave. <laughs> well, yeah, I, I laugh about it now, but I mean, it was... <laughs> It was less amusing back then. Basically, uh, we, we, were, we, we went to the huts. We went to Morse's huts. That was a great success. Uh, drove back. Um, the drive back didn't seem as unpleasant, bizarrely, because I was so cold that day. I didn't sleep for 36 hours. Anyway, we got back. It was a great success. And we thought, right, we've done our expedition. We need to go back. And everyone had collected their data. And just the day that we were going to go, I think it was a couple of days after the Mawson expedition, the weather just starts to get worse. And, uh, you know... The weather in Antarctica changes all the time. It just does. And anything you can do there is predicated on that. So you, know, you might think, you know, we, we want to take the ship two miles that way. Yeah, you can. I mean, you might be able to, but it might take you a day to do that or it might take you an hour. You know, you don't know. And and you have to just get used to that. So when someone says, oh, the weather's a bit terrible today, we're going to stick here for a little bit. You think, yeah, that's just what it is. But then the weather kept getting worse. And we woke up one morning to find that... Uh, we were completely surrounded by ice. Like, I mean, I'm not just saying you know, there was ice flows all around us and there was channels between them. No, nothing. It was like completely white. It was like a concrete road of ice just all the way to the horizon. And what the hell's happened here? And it turns out, of course, that ice moves around Antarctica all the time. These ice flows are just blown around by the winds. And what happened overnight, uh, one night, was that uh, it was around Christmas Eve, in fact, that um, the, the, the wind had just changed and had blown a lot of ice in our direction. And we were just pinned towards the continents. The continent was about two miles away and the wind was blowing us towards the continent and then all the ice was blowing, was sort of around us as well and was pinning that. And so this stuff's strong. You, you know, you're not going to get through it if it's compressed together. I mean, the icebreaker that we were on, it, it, was, it was an ice-strengthened vessel rather than an icebreaker, so you could get through ice quite easily, but mm. it couldn't break through like two metres thick ice. You just can't do that. But this happens in Antarctica, by the way. You know, ships get stuck all the time. They just wait and the wind, wind changes and the ice breaks up and you can leave. Um, Shackleton famously got stuck for, a, for ages, or a, a long story. So we, we, we got stuck. We didn't think unduly anything. We thought we'd, the weather would change tomorrow. It didn't. In fact, what happened was that we were, uh, on the first day, we were a couple of miles from uh, open water. We could see the open water. The next day, we were 20 miles from open water. That's how much ice had turned up. We're like, this is, this is, this is getting serious. And every day, we thought the wind would change and something would happen and it would be fine. And every day it just didn't happen like that. And so it was a bit of a psychological cocktail, as one of the expedition leaders called it. It's quite an interesting psychological cocktail to be thrown into because we were all used to how things change, but still... And they were giving us lots of information. It wasn't that anyone was keeping anything from us, but none of us really had the information to process globally what was happening. Mm -hmm. And it was about Christmas Day or just after, or maybe a few days after, that... um, 
the captain uh, decided that he wasn't going to wait out, wait it out because, like I said, you could just wait it out. And we had enough supplies on the ship for several weeks. We probably would have had to go down from three course meals to two course meals. The, meal, the food was delicious on that thing, but th- he decided that we weren't going to wait it out because he noticed icebergs. And these icebergs were also embedded in the ice like we were. But because icebergs are not blown around by the wind, so the ice flows are blown around by the wind because they're only a couple of metres thick. And we were embedded within that, and we were being blown around by that same thing. So we were moving with the ice flows. Mm-hmm. Icebergs, however, are hundreds of metres down thick, and, uh, uh, you know, the, the many, many uh, metres below the ocean uh, surface. And they're moved around by the currents. And the currents can be different to the winds. And so they can just go through very dense ice flows as if they're not there. And so we couldn't move, but the icebergs could move. And so there's one just a couple of miles off our off our bow. And the captain, rightly, thought, let, let the Coast Guard know. And it was the Coast Guard that then decided, right, we're going to send ships to rescue you. So this, this is sort of the, um, the scientific expedition got sort of a... Uh, was as was meant to happen got turned into this which is that we were 20 miles uh, from open water stuck near uh, the um, Commonwealth Bay and we, we were there for 10 days in the end because what happened was that after a few days the May Day went out and in Antarctica because there are so few people and the logistics are very difficult there's just a sort of tr- uh, sort of a pact between people anyone who goes down there from whatever nationality they'll help each other if something happens and you know I spoke to many Antarctic veterans afterwards as well about this and that Many of them have been to Antarctica for a specific purpose and their entire season is taken up by rescuing other people. It's just what they do because they'll always need the help at some point. So um, the Australian Coast Guard tasked the three closest ships to us. So there's the the French vessel, the Astrolabe, um, which was, um, I think it was about three days away. And then there's the Australian ship, the Aurora Australis, which is the government icebreaker of Australia. And that was at the nearby Casey uh, Antarctic base, also about three or four days away. But the closest ship was the um, Chinese vessel, the Zhui Long Snow Dragon. And uh, that was uh, asked to come to our assistance and break us out, essentially. And it was a big ship, this thing. And they, without any hesitation, swapped them they were off to uh, supply uh, build a base um, the Chinese are building lots of bases in Antarctica that's another story and this was going to be doing part of that without any hesitation they, they, they just turned around and came towards us which was you know, gratifying and lovely and then they, they basically we saw them um, off to the horizon about 8 or 9 kilometres away um, one night thinking this is it we're going to be broken out now and then people were celebrating and stuff and we're like right, okay everyone go to sleep because tomorrow's going to be a long day and wake up in the morning at six o'clock and you'll see the, the Jouet Long, this enormous ship next to us. We woke up the next morning and it wasn't anywhere near us. It was still on the horizon. We were like, hang on, what's happened? Turns out the ice was so thick that even it couldn't get through. And the captain decided, right, I'm not going to risk it. And it was having trouble getting towards us. It was really struggling. So this Aurora was Australia, which was only a few days behind us. It was coming towards us as well. And it decided that by the time it got to the edge of the ice, which was a good 10 kilometres or 20 kilometres away by now, it decided it wasn't going to come to our aid because it might get stuck. And at this point, the Jue Long was having trouble and it was looking like it was getting stuck as well. So, you know, we, we were on the ship thinking, this is, this is awful. We can't believe that the ship's getting stuck on our behalf. Never mind us getting stuck. It was pretty, we were in pretty good contact with these guys, but it was looking hairy for everyone. Uh, and the Astrolabe, by this point, had come and seen how thick it was and had been told, don't go in there, basically. It's, it's, we don't want another stuck ship. So it had gone back to its base. So at this point, the Jue Long was stuck a few kilometres away from us. The Aurora Australis was another 10 kilometres beyond us. We, we couldn't see it. And at this point, we're like, well, what, what happens next? Well, how do we get off? Because, uh, you know, the icebergs weren't necessarily coming closer, but we're thinking, you know, we've made the mating now. We've got, to, we've got to do something. And every day, there was always the possibility the wind would change and stuff, but it just never did. And what the Coast Guard decided was going to happen was that we were going to be taken off, we were going to be evacuated by helicopter. So the Chinese ship, the Zhui Long, had a helicopter, like a big helicopter on board. So... It essentially sent its helicopter to us. We had to find a little landing space on the ice next to us. It landed next to us, and in teams of 12, we got on the uh, helicopter, loaded up with baggage, and flew over, over the Jouet Long, in fact, to the Aurora Australis, landed next to that. We were, it was put, put onto that ship. Then the uh, uh, Jouet Long's helicopter 
went back to the uh, Schakowsky, collected another 12 people. This took about seven or eight hours. And the conditions had to be perfect. You cannot fly in Antarctica when there was a vague, bad weather situation. But it was actually a very beautiful day, um, blue skies and all that. Um, we've managed to find ice thick enough for the helicopter to land on. It was a big beast, this thing. I mean, you did not want this thing sinking into, <laughs> into the ice. Uh, and, you know, they rescued us, um, the Chinese rescued us. And then they were stuck for several days after that. And the, and the Russians were stuck for several days after that. We got onto the Aurora Australis and... We then spent three weeks getting home because the Aurora had its own mission to accomplish. It had to go back to Casey, the Australian base, supply it, stay there for a week, and then it took two weeks or so to sail back through the Southern Ocean all the way back to Australia. The, only then did we realise just how big the story was because we, when we were stuck actually in on the Schakowsky, uh, we had sort of began systems and stuff to sort of send articles and pictures and videos and things back to the Guardian, which is where I was working then. And um, the expedition leader had his own system, and we were just getting lots of requests from network news networks around the world, British. Uh, Americans, bizarrely, even though there were no Americans on board our ship, loads of American news networks were asking to interview us, and we had the capability to do Skype. And because the ship was stationary, the connection was actually quite good, even though we were in Antarctica. And we got sort of quite decent Skype connections. We did all these interviews with um, people. And the purpose of those was not to publicise what was going on down there, mm-hmm. but simply to sort of, A, reassure our friends and family that we were actually in good spirits and things were well down there. And B, to sort of stop this very strange set of stories that were sort of, sort of we saw sort of flying around about the nature of the expedition and how it was careless and all of these things. And, and there were very serious conversations with the uh, expedition leader, the um, uh, scientists on board, doing interviews with people, just being very honest about the situation. And I think that it was our own personal sort of attempt to sort of address that sort of uh, information thing that was going on. My, my, my favourite part of that whole thing was that I was, we were interviewed by Anderson Cooper three times. And it's only when Anderson Cooper decided that when he wanted to interview us on his programme, 360 with Anderson Cooper, that we thought, shit, we might actually be in trouble here. <laughs> because he only goes to the most dangerous places, right? <laughs> Well, I'm glad you got back in one piece, not least, so we could we could talk about this book. And we've been talking about The Water Book by Alok Jar. It's out now in hardback from Headline Books. So, Alok, thank you for coming in and telling me about it. Thanks for inviting me. It's a pleasure. You've been listening to Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture. This episode of Little Atoms was produced and presented by Neil Denny and was broadcast on Resonance 104.4 FM. The show is supported by 89Up and hosted by Positive Internet. You can follow the show on Twitter at Little Atoms. You can find old interviews, new journalism and more on our relaunched website, littleatoms.com. Thanks for listening. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started.